And this guy walked by me smoking a joint. And I think I went, well, obviously, because the guy, and I don't know if people saw that on, on camera. I think they missed that part. The guy was like, <sighs> and, and so I was like, it smells like weed, obviously, whatever, blah, 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 blah. But it didn't mean like, I, I, it's obvious that black people smoke weed. I'm like, this guy is smoking weed. Like, this is literally but, happening right now. This is literally now. happening now. <laughs> and everybody went crazy about that. I'm like, and I'm like, listen, I smoke weed. Welcome to another episode of Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Now, some of you may not know this, but in my former life at ESPN, even though I had my own television show, I was a relative novice when it came to being a broadcaster. So like a lot of new broadcasters, I had to learn by watching other broadcasters. And one person I absolutely love to watch was none other than CNN broadcaster Don Lemon. Love him, hate him, he always has something interesting to say, and he's just one of the best in the game. And guess what? He's coming up next. So as I said in the open, I learned a lot by watching Don Lemon. And as much as I professionally respect Don, I have just as much personal respect for him as well. He has, to me, in a lot of ways, helped change the conversation and the perceptions about gay black men in America. So I'm so excited to welcome him to the show. But first and foremost, congratulations, Don, on getting engaged. All right, uh, Don, let me um, ask what I'm sure at this point in your life is an increasingly annoying question because I went through it too. Uh, so when you get married? <laughs> it's only been three weeks and two days. Right. Uh, I don't know. We're trying to figure it out when we're getting married and we're trying to figure out where we're going to get married. Mm. But here's the thing, Jamel. The, we're trying to figure out if we're going to do, like try to squeeze it in this year, which would be really fast, or do it next year, which would be complicated because it's going to be the debates, the political conventions, the election. We're like, oh, so I'm not sure what to do. Maybe you should just go to Justice of the Peace. I don't know. <laughs> no, you got to give yourself a, a little <laughs> bit of pomp and circumstance. Speed through. I'm powering through. I'm getting married in November. How is that process? So <laughs> all the major decisions I have been taken care of. And with place, this is what I need. This is what you got to think about. See, I, I'm from Detroit, right? And my fiance is also from Detroit. And a lot of people have been like, why aren't y'all having this in Detroit? Well, we're having our engagement party in Detroit. And let me tell you, it's increasingly becoming the reason why the wedding shouldn't be in Detroit. Because I'm not trying to have 4,500 uncles oh my I ain't never heard of pop up. Because already, can I just call out black people for a second? But, I mean, I all want to like, come. <laughs> look, I, I'm not trying to make it seem like this is germane <laughs> to us as a race. But I feel but, it. But however, comma. However, comma, some of our people don't understand etiquette when it comes to being invited to wedding-related activities. And bringing other people. Don, yes. I had, this is a true story. <laughs> I had a relative I have legit talked to maybe <laughs> once in a decade was not invited to the engagement party. Somehow, because they then this is the other thing, they started passing out my engagement invite like it's a party flyer. Like, bro, 
we look, this ain't Friday night at the club. Like we ain't passing our flyers on the windshield of cars. It's like, oh, show up and you can be at the right. wedding. No, that's not how this works, right? That's not how we <laughs> but do it. People don't realize how much how much it costs uh, uh, the to last, feed you. The last two people who got married, who I know, one of them was Anna Burrow. She said, you know, they're gonna tell you it's this isn't this a person. She said she ended up spending like almost nine hundred dollars a person on her wedding when you when you break down what she spent on her wedding just for the facilities and the food it's like 900 bucks no it's no joke and so i had i mean this is just the engagement party okay and we started off with the number and god bless my maid of honor kelly carter who has got the patience of job because i don't know how she's dealing with all of this but her and also my fiance's best friend, Rich, shout out to Rich, uh, they planned this engagement party together. Lovely affair. Started off with the number of 70, and it's now at like 120, right? And so the, the this relative who I had not spoken to in 10 years, not only somehow came across the invite, but had the nerve to RSVP and RSVP two other people. Herself what? and two other people. And I was what? like, I didn't even <laughs> know you! And now you bring... What? I was like, man... So wait a minute, you, you went from... 70. To 120. 100, real quick. You're going to end up at 200. Not happening. You're not going to do I'm, it. Drawing a, I'm drawing a line. I'm drawing a line. But see that, <laughs> okay, so I need advice since you're doing this. Should I just do the family thing and then just throw a big party? Because it, I, it would just be immediate family, like mm -hmm. mom, sisters, my dad's not here, whoever, her boyfriend, whatever, and just family for the ceremony and then just throw a party. You could do that, and it just depends on location. You know, a lot of people, I, as I understand this now, they do destination weddings. And by the way, my wedding's in L.A. And that's sort of a way to be a destination wedding, but not. not but yeah. you got to commit if you come. Right. Right. So the thing is, if you are having this where a lot of people know you, it's going to be kind of problematic. Yeah. But if you you can always have the out going elsewhere, doing a destination, because then you know everybody can't make it. Oh. So then it can be intimate. It can be just friends and close, you know, family, and then that's it. And then you had a party right there, and you don't have to worry about so it. So my wedding's going to be in Greenland. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> I'm having a wedding in the North Pole. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> see who's committed. See who's coming. See how many people can come. But seriously, it's, it's tough. It is. And especially because, you know, you have you have tiers of friends. I mean, you have friends that, you know, been your day ones. Yeah. And especially given with you being, uh, you know, a public person is that you have professional friends and you have like so many layers and you've had multiple jobs and multiple stops. Yeah, you know it. Yeah. So I've been I've lived in, let's see, Birmingham, St. Louis, um, Chicago, New York. Philadelphia, Atlanta, and I have friends from Louisiana, Baton Rouge. I have friends from all of those places and relatives in Louisiana. So I'm trying to figure that out. But also, like I said, I just want to invite family and friends, which is really, you know, what it's about, family. But I have this feeling like, you know, people, some people haven't seen a gay wedding or a same-sex wedding, and maybe they need to be exposed to it. I don't know if that's my obligation, but I feel like that's a way as a journalist to educate people that... You know, this is a commitment just like a straight person. See, you have such an incredible spirit for that because the only thing I'm worried about is, am I happy? Is it liquor? That's literally <laughs> all I care about. I don't care if they happy. I don't care if they don't like it. If they hot, I don't care. And you have to have chicken wings. <laughs> <laughs> and if the wings bad, you're in trouble. You got to have good chicken no, wings. No, this place, we won't, have, uh, we won't have wings. So it'll be out in Orange County. Uh, it won't be fancy, but I think people will enjoy the food. They better. They better eat every last crumb. If I'm I have a everybody. fancy wedding tomorrow, I'm going to have wings. Really? I to, I, oh, I do live, you? Ask, ask my, my producer. I mean, my uh, publicist is here. 
I love me some wings. Hot wings? Whew, yes, indeed. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I had it. them yesterday in D.C. After no the White House correspondence. Yeah. See? Like, Keeping it real. Give me some wings, yes. <laughs> so how did Tim propose? We were at home. It was his birthday. Tim is my fiance. And he said before his birthday, he said, I want to do a couple things. It's my day. I'm like, yes, this is your day. So he said, I want to cook breakfast at home. I want to uh, spend time with the dogs. And I want to go get a manicure and pedicure. And I'm like, what? A manicure, pedicure? All right, whatever. Because usually, you know, I'm, sometimes I'll do that every, like, twice a year, three times a year. And I'll just clip the rest, you know. And I'm saying, okay, fine. Um, so I woke up and I said, ah, oh, dude, really mess up the kitchen. Like, I got to clean it up. And he goes, all right, well, we can go out for breakfast. So we went out for breakfast. We took the dogs. And then we went to get a manicure and a pedicure. And I'm like, okay, this is weird, but this is what he wants to do. So we get back to the house. We had a big party to go to later that night. And I said, I'm just going to go chill because I need a nap. It's, it was a long week. And this was a Saturday morning. So I went in the bedroom and I was like laying on, on the bed and just kind of watching TV, flipping through and like on my, on my phone. And he comes in with the dogs and the dogs jumped up on the bed. And I looked and he goes, did you see the new dog tags? And I said, no. I said, oh, look, they look like little bones or like little ribbons or bow ties. And I looked at it and I read it. And it said, Daddy, will you marry Papa? So... For the dogs, my name is Daddy, just for the dogs or Papa. Like, I'll say, go to Papa. I'm like, whatever. And he'll say, go to Daddy. I can't be bothered with you or whatever. So that's our little nickname for the dogs. And I, I looked at it and I said, what? <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, are you serious? Right? And then he got down on one knee and like whipped out this box and opened it up and said, Don, I love you. And, you know, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. I can't imagine life without you. Will you marry me? And I just looked at him, and his his hands were trembling, and his lips were quivering. And I said, "Oh my God, you're serious!" And I'm like, "I'm not gonna laugh because I wanted to bust out laughing. Like, is this so mean? Is this shit real? I'm like, is this real?" And he and he was serious, and I said, "Of course I'll marry you, silly." And then um, that was it. So I take it you guys have been having these discussions. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it's funny because we have a friend who's a jeweler, and we were both. Well, I didn't realize he was contacting the jeweler, that he was in talks with the jeweler. So I called, uh, I, I texted Mark. His name is Mark Lash. He's Canadian. And I said, Mark, you got some designs for me? You know, let me know. And, he, and then, like, he didn't get back to me for, like, a week or so. And he said, oh, are you sure you're ready for wing, rings right now? Well, wings. I am always, <laughs> always ready for that. But right? <laughs> he said, are you sure you're ready for rings right now? And I said, yeah, I'm ready. And then I, he kept putting me off. He goes, I'll be in New York in a week or two. I'll, I'll bring some stuff by. I'm like okay, well, what's going to take so long? And so then that's, he was already talking to Tim and he, and he was telling Tim, like, Don's contacting me. We got to do this fast. So Wow. So you were obviously completely caught mm -hmm. off guard. But can I tell you, I was completely caught, like, stunned. Right. But the weird thing is, it feels different. Like, once someone proposes to you, and I would imagine, I can only imagine you have to tell me because you're going to get married before me, I, I think. If it feels even... If there's a different feeling, like once you actually say those vows, I would imagine they are. But once he proposed, I was like, oh, like, he's mine. I'm his. Like, it was good. It was He proposed to me in the bedroom. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was on. Yeah. <laughs> See, I didn't get that because I got proposed to on top of a building Yeah, in that would LA. be a little weird. Yeah, it would be. I mean, I wasn't trying to die, you know, after getting that ring, you know, getting a little wild up there. <laughs> <laughs> so you were already perfectly uh, perfectly situated, but I was I, stunned. 
I never it, thought I could get married. But you're, um, and I'm going to ask you about that in a moment because it, it was something uh, that you said in the past that struck me, especially, you know, seeing where your personal life is now. But you're right. As soon as the ring gets on, it's, it starts to settle in. Yep. And I uh, I had this joke with my fiance, but I was like, you know, dead serious though, I might be smiling. It's just like, you know, before I really, I would have been sad if you died. But like now... Like now that we're engaged, right. it's like, yo, it's like different. Yes. Like I'm responsible for you. Like, you know? It's weird, right? Yeah. Like today I thought about like he called me, I was having breakfast at the hotel and he said, um, you know, the dog like didn't get on the bed last night, like something's wrong with the dog. And I'm like, Well, what do you mean? And because it's like our little family. So I'm like, Is he okay? Can you take him to the vet? Like, is what's going on with you guys? It's I mean, it's a it's like it's a real family unit now. And I know that sounds weird. I know people listen and you know, and they think like Oh, you know, being gay is funny or a joke or weird and odd. But it's nothing weird or odd or a joke about my life and about people who are um, LGBTQ. Right. We are part of America. We're part of the world. We're human beings. We're all God's children. And everybody deserves love. And to be able to be to have love and share love and give love and be in love and marry whoever they want. If you have the same right under the sun, under the Constitution, then I should have the same right. And... I mean, I got to be honest with you, sometimes that's tough. Like, it's even weird for me sometimes. And I like I have sometimes a hesitation about talking about it. And then there's a this part of me that says, no, don't be hesitant. Go forward. Share your truth. Live your truth. Now, you, you said before that you never thought, this is obviously prior to this relationship, that you never thought you'd be able to be public with your relationships, let alone get married. Why were you so resigned that that was going to be sort of your existence well this is a new thing like you know when i grew up i'm older than you so I, you know i was born in 1966 right so i was a child in the 70s and 80s you just didn't talk about it it just wasn't something that would happen and everyone you know they would make fun of people and call them a sissy or a punk or all that stuff so you just didn't share that part of your life and in many people who many men especially who are my age and women as well who are my age they lived a lie they got married and they pretended to be heterosexual. And then later on in life came out and they got a divorce or what have you. Some people had arrangements with their wives or husbands or, or whatever. I knew very early on in my early 20s, my, my early 20s, that I did not want to live that life, like that fake life. And so I just thought that I would have a relationship possibly, but it would be secret. It would be my roommate, maybe eventually as time passed, my partner or whatever. But never share anything like that with the world, let alone get married. And even if I had, it used to be, remember, commitment ceremonies? Mm -hmm. People, Gay people would have commitment ceremonies. And I thought, okay, maybe I'll have a commitment ceremony or whatever. But this is just, you know, this just happened recently when Obama said this should be the law of the land and the Supreme Court said that, absolutely. You know, I, I didn't even think about it then. I was like, okay, all of these gay people are getting married and they want to be so heteronormative. And it's like, I like being different and unique. And then I met someone who I wanted to, spend my life with and that all changed and so for me it was like i can't even say it was a double it was doubly exciting or it was i, I can't exponentially because uh, my life changed like in that instant before the public knew were you out i assume you were out to your friends i was and out to friends and okay. co-workers and i was essentially out but i just didn't talk about it publicly it's like someone asked me something in an interview it was like, i was just you know i don't talk about my personal life i'm married to my job that sort of thing. But you know, Wendy used to try to out me all the time in Philadelphia. <laughs> oh, yeah. She was in Philadelphia when I was in Philadelphia. And I think it was 12th Street, I forget that, but there was a gay club on like 12th Street in Center City. And she'd say, somebody told me that they saw Don Lemon on 12th Street. And you know, that meant 
that he was going to the gay bar or whatever. And I'm like, Wendy, why are you trying to out me? Damn. But, you know, we're friends now. Years later, we're friends. But she said, and she told me when I went on her show, I actually came out on her show. It was one of the first talk shows I did. She said, you know, when you're on the radio, you make a lot of enemies and you talk shit about a lot of people. And I said, Wendy, I get that. It's no, no big deal. So what was it that finally, you know, kind of made you decide that you're going to live your life publicly as a gay man? I wanted to. I kept asking people about coming out. I used to ask my publicists about coming out. And it was a different time. That's what my whole thing, I wish we can, you and I can have a conversation about this, about people looking back on the past through a, a current lens because the times were different. And it was just, you know, it was just, that didn't mean it was good or it was the right thing, but it was just different times. I was right, someone asked me to write a book. And I used, to, I used to say, maybe I should come out, maybe I should come out, because it just felt like I was hiding something. It just felt like this big secret or that someone would expose me at any moment, right? And I was uh, writing a book, and it was about my, my journeys as a journalist, and, so, and, and my, my life and my journeys as a journalist. And so I got to the part where, you know, I moved to New York, New York City to blah, 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 and I said, well, if I don't say this, then I, I'm lying. Even just by omission, that's a lie. And so I got to the part, and I said, look, and then... At this point in my life, I moved to New York City because I wanted to be who I was. I was gay, and I felt that I could be myself in New York City, and that I would never be able to be that transparent and that open and live my truth in Louisiana. And so I wrote about it in the book, and then it, all hell broke loose. <laughs> was like, and that's the name of the book, Transparent. It was Transparent. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> you remember Brilliant that. Brilliant title, right? <laughs> yeah. it, it went in line with everything you were talking about. Now, I, I imagine at that time that you probably had a lot of fears and a lot of doubts. In hindsight, were they justified? Were they overblown? Um, how do you look at kind of how you felt then from the perspective of now? So it's hard for me to... I can only say that maybe I was too worried or maybe um, I can say that in this moment. But then it was completely real because the world wasn't the same place as it is now. I never imagined that literally thousands of people would be on social media congratulating me for getting engaged to a man or stopping me on the streets or wherever I go or you know, sending my mom Facebook posts, congratulations to your son. It was a different time in 2011. It felt it feels like a whole nother world. So I would say now it's unfounded, but then it was definitely real. I didn't think that people would tune into me. I thought I would lose my audience. I thought people would say that I was a sinner and that I was going against God and all you know all of those things. And some people did, but um, I think that it actually may have done the reverse. I think that ultimately people are drawn to authenticity. And as long as you're not hurting anybody, I think they're fine with it. And I think that and that and that authenticity allowed me to become more of who I am and to speak truth even more and to become a little bolder, a little braver. And it, each step just kept propelling me forward. You mentioned that, that how that authenticity often connects with people. And it kind of reminds me of what happened with Robin Roberts. And when Robin Roberts, um, not about... Uh, her coming out, but I think when she started to let the audience into her life, it started with Hurricane Katrina. And when she got, yeah. when she got cancer. And when she got cancer and, coming out, and yeah. coming out. And so at these moments, and I think that's why she's one of the most beloved television personalities in America. Um, did you feel that, that once you came out, and especially once you disclosed that you were also a sexual abuse survivor, that your audience started to kind of connect with you in a different way? I do. 
my audience, I, I feel like my audience started connecting me. And don't get me wrong, there are way more people who love me than who hate me, but there are a lot of people who hate me. I think it's different for me, and this is just me, and you, everybody can say that I'm wrong or not. I think it's different for a woman being gay than it is for a man being gay. A black man for being a gay. Black man being yeah. gay. So I get a lot of hate. I think the lot, a lot of the criticism for me is rooted in homophobia and obviously rooted in racism. So, um, you know, I'll read things and I'll say, well, what does that have to do with anything that I said that you're talking about what I do in the bedroom? That has nothing to do with the conversation I had on television. If that's your criticism of me, then you're, you know, it's just completely off. So I think, yes. For Robin, yes, and I think the same thing for me, but it's our journeys, I think, are a little bit different because I think people are a little bit more accepting of women being gay than they are of men. Yeah, I mean, it was just more mostly looking at um, just her getting personal, and I think um, at least... How could you not love Robin? Oh, I mean, you you really... You know, just kind of like hate people if you don't love <laughs> Robin Roberts. You know, it's like it's impossible to hate her. And uh, she's always, um, you know, in my mind, she's Auntie Robin, right? right. Okay. She's been up for a while, but even more so now is Gail. Oh, Robert. Man, listen, Robert. <laughs> Gail snatched every edge that I had in that R. Kelly interview. That's like some of the most brilliant interviewing that I've ever seen. <laughs> she wow. was like, you're just not going to act a fool with right. me. You're going to sit down and you're going to answer these questions and this is what we're going to do. She was like, yeah, my, she was like your aunt, like, Don, sit your ass down. <laughs> exactly. Right her entire tone. I was, was here like, for the mood of what we're not going to do. That was like her whole tone in that interview. And I was like, I receive it, Auntie Gail. I receive it. You, you talked about how like, you know, some people, a lot of people love you. But definitely, you're right. A lot of people do hate you. And what's been fascinating to me is that I've sort of, you know, as just a bystander watching your career, and certainly as somebody who is does not have the same level of broadcast experience that you do, um, you are always somebody that I enjoy watching just from a pure professional, technical, re, you know, way you do your job. It was a lot of things that I picked up upon that you did, your, your comfort, your ease with the audience, um, a lot of things that I've honestly learned watching you. Now, you've seen both sides of the spectrum in the sense of the black people. Black Twitter going after me. Black people (laughs) loved you. They put you down. Now the black people don't pick you back up again. (laughs) And I I don't know how aware you were of these memes, but one of the funniest memes that I've seen, and hopefully you have a good sense of humor, is when they were like Don Lemon 2010 versus Don Lemon 2018, 2019. So it was like Don Lemon raisins in a potato salad in 20 whatever. Don Lemon, you know. Uh, at the fish fry in, <laughs> in 2019. I have a great sense of humor. You, I, so yeah. I don't know. What do you make of all that? Well, I mean, the part I can't control that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's part of me that what I do, it belongs to the the masses, and that's what. If if I tried to worry, if I worried about that, I would never get any sleep. I'm cool with that. It's fine. I, I have a very thick skin. The thing is, the, the, the and I think that what you see is that I don't really care what people think about me. And I'm not going to, I'm here for black people. I'm black. And so, um, but I'm also very outspoken. And I'm also, I think, in especially in, in many of these conversations, ahead of my time, because I'm the only person who's out there talking about it. And so I'm going to get the rocks and the slings and the arrows, but that's part of having, that's the privilege of having this platform. That's how I look at it as a privilege. If I wasn't here, if I wasn't doing those things, and in some ways making mistakes or trying things, then nobody would care. I, and I do push the envelope because I say pretty much, I have, I think on CNN and on 
any traditional legacy news outlet, I have the most editorial freedom of anyone, almost anyone I know. And that is a blessing and a curse. And so I take all of that. But I, I never thought that people didn't like me because the loudest voices aren't always the majority. But I thought that, you know, people were like, wait a minute, where's he going? I don't understand this shit. No, no, no. And he's not speaking for us when I always am. And I think a lot of a lot of what people were doing that about was was taken out of context. Yeah, well, I, I think for, you know, you've had such memorable kind of on air experiences. I mean, you know, Ferguson, all, like all these things have like kind of played out. You know, in real time, um, Talib Kweli live, live on live television. That was completely taken out of context because I came up. We I've been there so long. I don't know if you remember that. Like so long in Ferguson, and between live shots, I used to skateboard to calm myself, and I, I wasn't even supposed to do the show with him. And someone called me and said, we're not sure if we want to have this guest on. Um, and Anderson is doing an interview. This is a very controversial guest. We're not sure we're going to have him on, blah, 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 blah. And Anderson's supposed to do the show, but he's not going to make it back from an interview. Can you anchor the show for Anderson? And what do you think of this guest? And I said, I'm not afraid of any guest, you know, especially if it's a black voice, I, w I want to have him on. And so when I got to the live shot, he was sitting there, but I didn't see him because my producers were talking. I had my IFBN, and I'm on my phone because this is this is where my business is. My rundown, all of the guest information, everything is on my phone. So immediately he said something like, "You were on your phone, and you were saying, I'm like, "I'm working. Like I'm not trying to ignore you. I'm not like I was very cordial. How are you? Whatever. I don't want to relitigate this whole thing. But he thinks I'm on his phone being disrespectful to him when actually I'm on my phone being respectful because I'm trying to find out all the information about him and to carry a show that I have just been asked at the last second to anchor. And so you know, and then I think the one thing I tried to jump in when he was talking about the cops, and I tried to jump in and say, well, the cops are saying that you're not there all the time, but he wouldn't let me get that out. And all he had to do was let me get it out, and then he could respond to it. But he went left, and then in my ear, they kept saying, rap, rap, rap. And I'm like, no, I'm not rapping. We're just having a conversation. I didn't think anything was wrong with the conversation. I liked it. The it was, back it was great TV. I thought it was great TV, and yeah. I thought it was fine. And at the end of the thing, I'm like, thank you, whatever, moved on. And then it became this whole thing, and I'm like, well, for what? All we were doing is having a conversation. And any guest, if I have you on and you have, I am going to, not necessarily, it's not necessarily what I believe, but I have to counter sometimes certain perspectives or things that are out there just to, to do my job. And not everybody gets that. So listen, I have nothing against him. He, I think he got it wrong, but that's all in the past. If I see him, I'd say hello, whatever. I'd have him back on the show. It's not a, even a big deal to me. What? Um, but a lot of that played out. Like you're right. A lot of things that happened to me played out live on TV, and there's no taking them back. And people interpret them the way they want to interpret them, and that's that's what it is. Yeah, I will never forget when you, um, you know, where you were you were on live. It was a shot, and you were discussing just the atmosphere there, and you mentioned about smelling marijuana. <laughs> And the black people around you, the way they looked at you, Don, I was like, Don ain't gonna make it out this live shot. He don't even know. Like it's going down. It was it was crazy, but I would say, you know, but I didn't mean it, you know, however, I forget what it said. I said, and then there was weed. Oh, and this guy walked by me smoking a joint. And I think I went, well, obviously, because the guy, and I don't know if people saw that on on camera. I think they missed that part. The guy was like, 
And, and so I was like, it smells like weed, obviously, whatever, blah, 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 blah. But it didn't mean like, I, I, it's obvious that black people smoke weed. I'm like, this guy is smoking weed. Like, this is literally right, happening this right now. This is literally now. happening now. And everybody went crazy about that. I'm like, and I'm like, listen, I smoke weed. I've said it on CNN before, but even before that, my boss, the first show that my boss gave me live was called, the, I think it was either the 11th Hour or Don Lemon, the Don Lemon Show. We talked about pot and all this stuff, and I said, and my boss called me up after, he goes, so a couple things I got from that is that you drive a Porsche and that you smoke weed. And I said, yeah, you're right. So it's nothing against the black, because more of my white friends smoke weed than my black friends. <laughs> and we're too get scared it for that me. we might get a random <laughs> test. It might, it might go down. No. <laughs> but smoking weed is not even a big deal anymore. No. I mean, Isn't it's, it crazy? it's practically legal almost, well, not almost everywhere, but it clearly the move towards legalization but is happening. On a serious note, I do have to say I understand why, on some level, why people went crazy because it's a stereotype, but it, that's not the way. That's not that the I context, mean. That's not obviously. The context you of what I mean. Well, I want to keep with this theme of going over some of Don Lemon's greatest hits, as I call them on television. You can talk to me. Seriously, that's one thing that you should know about me, and I think you do. You can ask me anything. Yeah, well, yeah. I have plenty more to ask you, because when we come back, I want to get to um, what I think is maybe one of the greatest opens to any you know, news program that I've ever heard, which you did. So we'll talk about that in a moment. So probably one of my favorite television moments from a broadcast news standpoint, and definitely what I think to be the signature moment of your show, Don, happened in January of 2018 when you famously opened your show with this. The president of the United States is racist. A lot of us already knew that. I was not shocked that Donald Trump reportedly called the majority of black and Hispanic countries uh, or continents shitholes. I wasn't shocked. I'm not. I'm really not outraged by it. I'm not outraged. I'm tired of being outraged, as a matter of fact. You know what? Fuck it. I'm about to call it <laughs> resident racist. This is what we're doing right now. Look, everything is, we have standards and practices, so everything goes by. But that was something that I definitely wanted to say. I kept saying to, this is one of those conversations that we have in, in the news department among producers. Like, why do we keep saying misinformation? The president misstated this. This person, Sarah Sanders, misstated or Kelly. Why don't we just say what they're doing? They're lying, right? And so I was one of the first people to say on CNN, no, the president lied. And that was tough to say because you don't, do you want to say the president of the United States lied, right? And so then we started having the discussion. I was like, why do we keep saying you know, I, I had asked him in a number of interviews, was he racist? He would say no. And then we started getting to the point where he's like, well, if he's not racist, he's certainly racist adjacent, right? And then it would get worse. I'm serious. The evidence would get worse. And I said, okay, he's trafficking racism. And I said, how much longer are we going to continue to sort of soft pedal this when you, if you look at the evidence? And so I presented to my producers in the network the evidence, and they were like, well... I mean, what can you say? What can like, you say? Yeah. And, 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 if, and if one person on the network can say it, it's me. Yeah. And so they said, look, that's, you're going to get whatever comes from that. And I'm like, I'm not worried about that. And if, I, who, if I'm not going to say it, who's going to say it? And so that, we opened the show that way. And I'm very comfortable with that. And I just discussed it this weekend with someone who said, I, you, I can't believe that you call the president racist. And I said, do I need to list off all of the evidence that shows that he is? And so, yes. Thank you. I'm glad you're proud of that. No, I'm really proud of that. I mean, and obviously, um, 
you know, it relates <laughs> to me because when I called him a white supremacist, I honestly did not think that was news. At that point, I was just like, well, I mean, I'm not saying this from an emotional uh, standpoint, emotional just in the sense that I don't think anyone holding that office should have these beliefs, you know, as being a part of uh, of not just who they are, but trying to make it into policy. It's like that is from a fact based perspective because the receipts have been there. He's given you plenty, you know, of of examples. And um, you know, as Maya Angelou said, you know, when people show you who they are, believe them. You know, we have to run down all of these, um, you know, all this evidence. When the number one that and I, I seem to forget sometimes, I don't know why, was the whole birther thing. That is like, do, do you really need anything beyond that? Do you, you know, have you ever asked any other president for their birth certificates? Do you really need to go beyond the Central Park Five? Do you really need to go beyond Red Line? Do you really need to go, go beyond shithole countries? Do you really need to go beyond uh, NFL players or sons of bitches? Do you, do you need to, I mean, how much further down the line do we need to go um, on both sides? Like, Now, of course, it's made you um, <laughs> a particular favorite of the president. <laughs> Um, where he has obviously said some disparaging things about you. Is the most recent thing he said about you when you had the conversation with LeBron and that he was called you? Publicly. Publicly. That's I've what I've heard. I mean, things, other things. That he said pri- privately? Privately. Okay. Yeah. Allegedly, um, as they say. Allegedly. But. Well, 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 take us back a little bit. What was your relationship like with Donald Trump before he became president? So I'd lived in New York in the 90s. Uh, when I was coming up through the ranks. And so I knew of Donald Trump and, you know, he would be out and about and people would, the Post would write about him all the time. And I knew, you know, there were stories about how he would fake his own press and he would call and pretend to be his press person. Like everyone knew that. He, he, he was estranged from his kids. The kids weren't real happy with him because they cheated on their mom. And then he had this, you know, he got married to Marla Maples and there was an affair and on the outside. But, so he was this controversial character who was a real estate person that nobody really took seriously. He was sort of a tabloid person. So that's how I knew of him. Once I became, once I started working for CNN, um, I, I, started, I interviewed him the night Osama bin Laden was killed. And I was pushing him on the whole birther thing. And we had this very heated argument, and my producer was like, oh my gosh, this is gonna blow up, it's gonna be crazy, and blah, blah, blah. So he was really mad at me, because I was pushing back, like, why would you do that? Isn't this racist? And he said, well, don't you think he should show his birth certificate? What if he was born? I said, well, why should he do it? Just because you say he should. And we just went back and forth. And then, like, literally 30 minutes later, they're like, we're getting word that Osama bin Laden is so, it never really, I think it may have made one blog, and if you go out there, you'll see it. And so over the years, I would ask him for an interview when he started to, and he wouldn't do it. And so finally, someone who knows him behind the scenes says he's not going to do it because he thinks that you're a racist against him because I <laughs> called out his racist. Okay. He thinks that you're a racist. That's hilarious, right. but go ahead. So she was friends with him. She says, no, 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 he's very fair. He'll come in. and inter-. So I did an interview with him, and he liked it. And I did another interview with him, and he liked it. Another, another, another. And I would challenge him in these interviews. I would ask him the same questions, but I would do it with a smile. Or I would say, Jim, Jamel, your hair is so beautiful, straight like that. Like, why don't you wear braids? You know what I mean? You give him a compliment, and then you ask the question. And so he would, and then he would end up answering. And so he didn't realize that I was doing the same thing, but I was just doing it with a smile on my face. So um, I, I, I interviewed him like eight or nine times, and he would come on. And then once he became the official nominee, and you had to start challenging him more and calling him on his bullshit, he didn't want to come on anymore. Mm. He started saying things about me. And then once he became president, the, what, what, I think the very first press conference that he gave, 
he talks in it. And that show on CNN, if you watch that 10 o'clock show, the things that he says so hateful, like he never said my name, but he was talking about me. So that was one of the first times that he criticized me publicly. And then he, he tweeted something about me being dumb before and then the LeBron James thing. And I, I don't care. Yeah, I was going to say, like, how do you – people ask me the same thing all the time. Like, how did you feel about the president tweeting about you? I was like, honestly, I, I really don't – I really don't care. It really is not that big of, <laughs> but, I mean, it's a big deal because you're just like, don't you got better shit to do? That's but exactly what I thought. At the same time, it's like I'm not hurt by it. No. Like, I don't even know this dude. You know? I didn't I was even like, believe it at first. Yeah. Like, I, I don't follow him. <laughs> me neither. I don't need to be – I actually blocked him. I don't, I don't follow him because I'm like, I don't really – if he does something that is newsworthy, I will know. You will hear about it. Everybody yes. will tell me. My team will tell me. Correct. And so I was walking to the wall, to the um, CVS to go get, like, some gum and uh, Listerine. I don't know what. And someone texted me. My phone started blowing up going, are you okay? Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. Oh, he's crazy. And I'm finally, I texted a friend back. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, the president, and he sent me a screen grab. I think it was Yashar. You know Yashar? Yeah, 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 and yeah. he sent me a screen grab. And I said, oh, Yashar, that is a fake account. There is no way. And then he texted me back. He goes, no, it's real. And then it just started blowing up. And then I just said, I'm not going to respond to him. I'm going to, I contacted Crystal, who's here, the PR. And then I contacted someone else in the PR department, the head. And I said, I'm just going to sleep on it. And so I didn't, I, I normally wouldn't respond, but this one was so egregious, I think, because it was about a man who was actually doing something really fantastic for his community, meaning LeBron James. And he has the nerve to call him dumb. This was the same time he was putting kids in cages and he was calling a man dumb who puts kids in school. And that was really my tweet. Who's the, who's the real dummy? Someone who puts kids in cages or someone who puts them in schools? And that was my response. And that's it. You think uh, if you were a white journalist that, Trump responds to you the same way? I, I don't know. I suspect maybe not. I don't know that. But I don't know why he does it anyway. He should not be calling people dumb in the first place. Did you ever hear Barack Obama call anybody dumb? It just sounds like so middle school. It's, I mean. Yeah. It's like yeah, calling people like, dumb like and intentionally like and, and pushing it out so that people could hear it. But you, here's what you must understand. I don't see him every day, like personally, but I know him. I know people like him. Everything he does is projection. So if he calls someone dumb, that means he's dumb. If he says someone is doing something crooked, that means he's doing something crooked. If he says someone is lying about something, that means he's lying about it. If he calls someone a racist, that means he's a racist. He is the definition of someone who projects their personality traits onto other people. Kind of reminds me of an ex that I had a long time ago who used to um, always be, he would always be checking where I was, asking me what I was doing. Because he was cheating. Because he was cheating on me. I was like, oh. There you go. That's, see, I didn't see it. I was like, (laughs) he needed to know where I was so he could do his bullshit. I get it now. Yeah. Man, that was like next level uh, Matrix. Now, of course, the news media has come under a lot of criticism about the way Trump was covered when he was running. Yeah. And CNN certainly took their fair share of criticism. How differently do you think he'll be covered for the re-election? I mean, I know we're sort of in that mode now. We're doing it. That's, what, yeah. that's what you're saying. So here's the thing. So it's not just me. My boss, the head of my company, has said that he would have done things differently. Like he wouldn't have carried rallies, you know, just let those rallies go unchecked without fact-checking him in real time. And that's tough to do. So you won't be seeing rallies of people spitting propaganda 
right on and just going for hours because it's this is different and unusual and you've never sort of seen this before or for whatever reasons i think that what you what you'll see now is you're going to see a lot more content about policy that's why we've had a million town halls because we want to hear what your policies are and i think the american people are dying for to hear policies we didn't hear a lot of that from him the last time we heard, we knew about Hillary Clinton. She had a long political life, plus she put her policies out there. We didn't hear that from Donald Trump, except for build a wall, build a wall, and you know we're going to ban you know all these people and all that stuff. So I think you're going to see a lot more policy, and you'll see. I think before we cover something, try to figure out exactly the reason for it, and not to be lured into a thing. Say, oh, the president is going to address uh, the birther issue about Barack Obama. And then you go to it live, and then he speaks about his hotels for 30 minutes. And then at the last, they say, Barack Obama, I put it to rest. We're not going to talk about him, whether he was born in the country. And you're like, what? Why did we do that? I think it'll, you'll see a smarter decision-making. How careful that. are you about some of the pundits that you put on, on television? Because I know... I mean, pundits that specifically represent his administration in some way. Very careful. I, I've noticed, uh, I can't say, frankly, all your colleagues are as careful. But, you know, why does that matter to you? Because I, I do think that that's the part of journalism that I witnessed that is very befuddling to me is that people who are obvious liars, who never tell the truth, get an amazing amount of television time. Right. So I, I'm in the position now that my name is on this show, right? And so now I say, okay. All right, let me say this. I see so many people using the First Amendment now as an excuse to spread hate and propaganda, and that's not what the First Amendment is about. No one has the right to appear on any network. It is a privilege. And if you have the opportunity to speak directly to the American people and to be able to influence them, then you at least owe them the right to tell the truth and to be honest. Also, just because there's everyone says, oh, you want to hear all sides, or whatever, or both sides, or whatever, that that's fine. If we're talking about a conservative versus liberal or libertarianism or whatever it is, but that that's a false equivalent. If you're ta if someone is spreading propaganda, I don't have to be a platform to spread propaganda. I don't have to be a platform to spread lies. I don't have to offer you my my platform for that. So if you come on and you do that, we're not necessarily going to invite you back. So when uh, when we're thinking about guests. Everyone who's on our booking team and my producers and, and me, we think about, is this person, does it, do they have a reputation for telling the truth or telling the lies? It's okay for you to be a Trump supporter. If you're a Trump supporter, people need to hear what you have to say. But it's not okay for you to lie. And it's not okay for you to spread false information. So, yes. And I think maybe I'm more outspoken about that on my shows, but that's who I am and that's what my show is about. For black journalists in particular, is journalism a good or bad place for us right now? For black journalists, mm -hmm. I think we need more black journalists. I think journalism is a great place. And I always tell students uh, and kids, if you want to be a journalist, now is the time. I think it's a great time to be a journalist, and it's a more important time to be a journalist. But can I just say something, too? People think, and even the organization that represents us as black journalists, I think there is a sense that, that journalists have to carry the water for a particular narrative in society. Being a journalist is not always about being an advocacy journalist. Journalists come in all shapes and sizes. And if you're going to be uh, a black journalist and you have to tell the truth, even if that means sometimes about black people, I think that we should allow black journalists to be conservative. 
we should allow black journalists to be impartial and we should not, they should not have to uh, carry a certain narrative just because they are black journalists. That's limiting because no one asks Wolf to be the journalist that speaks for all Jewish people. No one asks Chris to be the journalist that speaks for all white people. And I understand that I do because I'm the only one there in primetime that I do speak for all black people, but you should not hold me to different standards because I'm a black person. You should allow me to have the same freedom as all other journalists have. Otherwise, we are inhibiting and hurting our young journalists coming up. I'm uncomfortable when I see when, you know, whether it be a speaking engagement or people are um, talking about me and they refer to me as an activist. And I'm right. like, I'm not an activist. Not an activist. Yeah, it's like I have a point of view and I have a perspective. Amen. And, high five. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> high five from, from across the, the couches. But it's here. okay to be an activist journalist. It, it is. If there, you there's, are. There's a space for that. Right. Absolutely. Right. But that's not what I necessarily right. got in it to do. And I try to tell younger journalists, you're reporting is your activism, your, right? Right, And you don't know what that truth's going to be. Right. And sometimes that truth is going to piss people off. And it right. might piss off a lot of people that look like you. Right. right. And you just have to be ready and willing to defend that position. I remember the night when the cop in Ferguson, Darren Wilson was not when they said that he was not going to, you know, be indicted and not or whatever. And so I knew his attorneys and I knew him. And so I got a tip that said, if he was going to be indicted, Don, we would know by now, and here's the information, because they'd have to go through all of these steps. And that hasn't happened, and the deadline is up. I mean, you guys don't know, but the, this false deadline that happens at this hour is whatever, blah, 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 blah. So I got on TV and reported that. You sell out, Uncle Tom, blah, 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 blah. You're reporting it. I'm like... You're oh, just reporting the facts. I'm just reporting the facts. <laughs> right. And then 30 minutes later, breaking news... Darren Wilson, not going to be indicted, blah, 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 blah. And nobody yelled at Anderson Cooper for reporting that news. Mm -hmm. But all the black people came after me. How is that fair? No, it's not. Because we got to be able to sometimes shine an uncomfortable light on what it, on what it is. The number one characteristic uh, you have to have as a journalist is to be curious. Number two right. is you have to be unbothered, yeah. which you clearly are. And <laughs> coming up, we're going to close out the show. And Don, I think you're going to love this because we close out the show this way, every podcast, with a segment that we call Fuck It Unbothered. <laughs> so that's coming up when we come back. All right, as we do every episode of Jamel Hill is Unbothered, we close the show with a segment we call Fuck It, I'm Bothered. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Love the sound effects, Don. <laughs> and the entire principle behind Fuck It, I'm Bothered is to talk about things big or small that just may be getting on our nerves or something I have, a, a, a as I like to call a quick bitch about, right? A quick complaint because the general mode of this podcast is about being unbothered, you know? So um, I want people to know there are little things that definitely bother me. And so this is my time to air my grievances, <laughs> if you will. So fuck it, I'm bothered about Carletta Outley Brown, who's a principal in Houston, who issued a dress code that has everybody talking, a lot of people on both sides, frankly, because in her dress code, which she addressed not to the kids, but to the parents, and the dress code bans these particular items, sagging pants, shorts, pajamas, shower caps, 
hair rollers, bonnets, or any revealing clothing. I wonder who she could be talking about, Don. Who, the, the, who, all the women? Who is she targeting? <laughs> now, there are some dress codes, moms. you know, for men. There is a dress code for men as well because the sagging pants and shorts. Obviously, I'm just going to assume that she is, you know, sort of angling that toward men. But a lot of the parents have reacted negatively. A lot of people have said, like, you know, how dare she call people out? And look, I get her frustration. This is one of those I can kind of see both sides, but yeah. at the end of the day, I have to be with the parents because <laughs> be lucky they showing up at school at all. That's number one, right? Bonnet, whatever, hair uh, rollers, wrap, don't you, matter. You're going to be mad at me. They, they, look, be lucky they showing up. All right, I agree with that. Okay, and if you in your the privacy of your car, yo, if I'm in my bonnet glory in a house robe <laughs> and some slippers, you well, just going to have to take well, it. Well, how are you going to know what kind of mini skirt exactly. or sagging you pants You don't know in what I car. got on. It don't matter. If I got on some pajamas, okay, all good. But I do understand her point of view because as someone who goes to the beauty supply to get my hair, <laughs> yes, I do, number six and number eight, holla if you hear me, all right, when I go up in the beauty supply, Don, it's some of our people that go up in there as if the beautician is in the beauty supply. She's right. not there. Right. So we coming in there in all manners, all right? We coming in there in house shoes, yeah. bonnets, wraps, all that, rollers, <laughs> you name it. I have seen it in a beauty supply store. Trust me. And I'll be like, did you really? Or even sometimes when I take a flight. Right? And we, oh my gosh. Dog, I, come on, man. I, and I don't want to see people, I don't want to see your legs and up half of your, and, and, uh, whatchamacallit. I'm talking about guys. The girls, yeah. you know, many, but I don't want to see like guys in shorts on fly. I know it's weird, but I'm like, all right, and you're sitting right next to me. It's just weird. But I have less of I, a can problem. Can I respond with to your, your. I have less of a problem. I'll but, just say quickly like, right. on, on, on flights, some of us come there as if we are going to bed. bed right? right? We, again, satin wrap, bonnets, pillows. Snacks. I'm like, all right, people, yeah. I mean, just need us to reel it on in. So I get it. <laughs> but at the end of the day, be lucky. Deal's parents are showing up at all. Your response okay, is to live. You it. are right. And here's what I have to say. I wouldn't want when I was a kid, because that would embarrass me if my mom had showed up in a bonnet or looking ratchet in any kind of way, I would have been really upset as a kid. It's embarrassing. But you wouldn't have said but, it because uh, she might have told you up. <laughs> uh, yes. But my mom would never have done that. Nobody right. I know, no, no one in my family would have ever done. I went to look, I went to a Catholic school that was very strict and I came up, you know, I came up with the talented tenth, right? Like that that sort of sort of bougie, whatever. And so we would never have done that. You, on one hand, I do get it. She has to set the example. Your parents should set the example. Having a kid is a big responsibility, and you have to set the example for your kid. And so I think, yes, I don't want well, you know how I feel. I don't like the sagging pants. I don't want to see your butt, especially in the summer, the sweaty underwear crack and whatever. I don't want to see it. It's just gross. And so I just don't think that's a good look. So I, I see, but I know that people are struggling. And sometimes all you can do when you're working two, three, four jobs is get jobs, get out of bed in your pajamas and drive your kid to school because, as you said, you're lucky they're in school. So I think that maybe they should have some sort of dress code if you get out of the car, if you come in. But if you're in your car, you can't tell people how to drop their kids off. If you're coming to school for a meeting, though, why would you want to come in pajamas? Hey, some of us ain't got that kind of time. Right? <laughs> we just like got to meet the parents. I'm just now, saying. I, I don't know myself, but I'm not here to judge others, right? For how because again, I'm not you never, judging. You never know somebody's situation. That's what right. I, that's what or I the said. reason that that had to be their reality. She could have just gotten off work at six in the morning. Totally. She, kid has to be at school at seven thirty. Totally understand it. And, and she's exhausted. And she's in a work uniform. And she has to have a hairnet for her job. Who knows? I'm just saying. But you know. We got to get it together. But I would rather see. I, I think that you have to dress. And first, you have to respect yourself. 
and dressed in a way for, for yourself to feel respected or what have you. And I think you also to have other people. And I think that's a, that's a good thing to teach your kids. Do I get one? You get one. Go ahead, Don. Fuck it, I'm bothered. I am bothered by the double standard in calling out domestic terror in this country when it is deemed to be a Muslim, a sort of Islamic terrorist, right away people, even before we figure out what it is, people are like, oh, it's a terrorist, it's a terrorist, it's a terrorist. When it is a white kid, it takes a long time for them to deem it that, or there's some sort of mental problem. He's troubled. He's troubled. Mm -hmm. We have to call it for what it is so that we can combat it. Because how do you figure it out? I mean, think about it. I mean, you look at all of these kids who are doing these things now, who are going and shooting synagogues and all of these things. They look like just any average guy that you'd see walking down the street. So don't stigmatize one group of people, right, and then be lenient with another group. I don't think you should stigmatize anyone. I'm not saying white men should be stigmatized. I'm not saying all white men are terrorists. But there's certainly a problem with domestic terror among white men in this country that we need to deal with. And me saying that is not being racist against white men. My man is a white man. <laughs> My grandmother was a white woman. So it's not, that's not it. It's just me being honest as a journalist because I want America to be safe, but I also want us to not be racist bigots. Well, and another thing, too, when you see the ages of some of uh, these domestic terrorists, there goes the um, at least the, the prevailing thought or the notion that it was dying with the old people. Because these are young people we're talking about. And Those that's people the with part tiki torches that were saying Jews will not young. replace us were young men mm -hmm. in khakis and, and you know, and button down shirts. That's who does that look? That looks like young people. It's just, and it looks like the, the it's the clan, but without the robes. Mm. Well, uh, Don, I want to thank you so much for joining me. Uh, we've I'm been bothered because this is over. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we certainly uh, talked about any and everything, and it's just a pleasure to sit down with you just overall, and not just to talk shop, because a lot of times when I do your show, it's like a couple, hello, goodbye, then I'm out, and She's 10 minutes She's doing here. my show the night that we're taping this. <laughs> yes, I am. So tonight, tonight. I figured the least I could do since you agreed to do this, that I, <laughs> I would do your show. But yeah, so it's always in and out, so it's a pleasure to sit down and have a more extended uh, conversation. So I'm sure a lot of people out there listening enjoyed this. Make sure you check him out every night, CNN, Don Lemon. Thank you never you. know how he might open you a show. <laughs> you never know. Thank you. Congratulations. All right. And we'll look, we'll talk on some wedding planning. All keep right? your truth and keep doing you. I'm so proud of you. Mel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. Jesse Burton is the executive producer for Spotify and Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Hill.